0: work through genesis 6 we come to the flood you probably think uh of noah and his white beard and the nice little quaint ark with little giraffe neck sticking out in a bright sunshiny rainbow over top that's not what i'm talking about um i'm talking about thousands upon thousands of people husbands wives children people who mowed their lawns paid their taxes living out their lives, working in their fields, caring for their flocks, doing their thing, and all of the sudden, torrential rains and tidal waves flood in, fill the streets, fill their fields, fill their houses, and they die. A whole world of people wiped out. Look with me, Genesis 6, 1 to 8, Um, This is exactly what we see. This this passage shows us uh, the descent into sin. It's dark. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart and so the Lord said I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord Do you pray with me Father, help us this morning as we come to a difficult text of Scripture. God, you know our pride hearts. You know our our stiffness and, and slowness to hear. God, would you soften our hearts this morning? Would you open our ears to hear from you? God, would you help us to see clearly, to handle uh, your word um, rightly? Lord, if I have anything I've prepared to say that is not true to your word, God, I pray that those words would just be left out, would fall to the ground, would be forgotten, that, that your word would go forth. Um, and God, be at work in us. We need it. We live in a broken, confusing, hurting, upside-down world. We need your truth. So, Father, um, plant our feet Um, on your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you have been salivating for this Sunday. You've been looking forward to this. Uh, Anyone who has gotten even six days into their Bible reading plan uh, is left with this question, what on earth is a Nephilim? Um, What is going on here? Ha! what happened, how did it happen. Um, I remember reading this um, as a teenager and just being utterly bewildered. Um, I remember coming home from my first year at Bible college, and and one of my dad's friends actually kind of cornered me and put me on the spot. He was pretty confident that after a a whole year of studying the Bible, I would be able to explain the Nephilim to him. Um, I have a a friend from the coffee shop that that I chat with on and off, and uh, has been asking me for months, when are you getting to Genesis 6, why are you taking so long in 1 and 2, when is Genesis 6, I I thought he'd be here this morning, Um, I'll have to bug him about that, but this big lingering question, so let's settle it once and for all, let's put an end to it, we're going to put an end to all the confusion and the wonder, I'm going to wrap it up with a neat little bow and put it to bed, somebody laughed, you got it. We're not. Um, Let me start by giving you point one. Um, The first heading, and and this is the the point of these first few verses. It's going to take us a little while to get there, but this is the the point of it. Um, The first thing we see is unbridled wickedness. Unbridled wickedness. But before we get there, I need to disappoint you. Um, I hope you're not too surprised by this, um, we need to understand as, as we dig into the Nephilim and, and this strange passage, um, these are universally understood and, and without reasonable debate to be some of, if not the hardest verses to interpret in the book of Genesis, if not in the Pentateuch, on par with anything in the Old Testament. Um, we're on just unclear ground here as we as we try to understand what's going on. Um, and it's not just the nature of the Nephilim. Actually, this, this whole little passage is just, it's not clear. It's full of little, what does he mean by this, and how does that go together? Um, it's not clear. And uh, there's just not enough information. Um, there's good reasons for differing understandings. And so, as we approach this, I would say that's the, that's the first person I would warn you about if, if you want to dig more into this as we're trying to understand just difficult things in Scripture in general. But um, the person who comes to this passage and says, oh, I've got it all figured out. I'm the one. I found the key. I have some new information that unlocks the wonder of the, the Nephilim. I'm the one who's got it all sorted out. Push him aside first, right? Don't even Don't even bother. Um, I'm sorry. He, he doesn't have it. That person is the one you need to not listen to. Plain and simple, um, they are arrogantly overlooking solid arguments against their position. I, I don't know any other way to say it. Um, God simply has not given us enough information to understand this passage with certainty. And, and no amount of looking at it will change that. Um, pride and confidence in your own conjectures is the only road that will get you um, to certainty here. So we need to approach this with an open hand and, and some humility. The other thing we need to recognize is, is we just shouldn't spend too much time here. <laughs> um, we're working through the book of Genesis and we've come to it. And so we're going to dig into it. Honestly, I think it's going to take more time than I intended. Um. But this is not a primary issue. This is not, our theology isn't built on this. And, and so, anyone who's, who wants to really focus on this, and th- I've spent years studying this, you've spent years distracted. It's not worth it. This, this is not important. Um, the important things in Scripture are the clear things, right? The important things in Scripture, the things that God really wants you to know and be rooted in and focused on, those are the things that he has said clearly and the things that he has said often. And on those things, we don't have debates. We don't have these long, confusing rabbit trails. The obscure, confusing passages, they tend to get so much attention because there's room for me to kind of elevate myself. No one else has it figured out. I can show you the truth here. And they suck us in, and, and it's simply not that important. But as we work through the book of Genesis, we've come up against it. Um, we're going to spend some time digging into it. Um, we know uh, a couple of things. Let's just work from the bottom up. What do we see in the text that, that we can kind of hang our hat on to start? Well, we know there is some group of people or beings called the sons of God. Maybe, like someone else talking this week, you've got a question mark right there. What? But there they are, there's somebody, um, and those people or beings um, are taking um, from the daughters of men um, any that they choose as wives. The Lord's response to that is to limit the lifespan of mankind, Um, we're we're going from like an average of like 900 and something, probably not average, but a bunch of people hit that down to 120. 120. And we're introduced to this strange new term, the Nephilim. We're told the Nephilim were there in those days and also afterwards. Another question mark there as you're reading through. It doesn't exactly say who the Nephilim are. It might be that that he's saying the Nephilim were there already. There's this sons of God and daughters of men thing, and the Nephilim were already there in those days and afterwards. He, He might actually be saying they're not connected. I think that's the less likely option, but that's just another hole here, a question. And these Nephilim are the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So that's what we're working with. And uh, let's see if we can get a little bit of clarity. Um, the first question, obviously, is who are these sons of God? Verse 2, what are we, what are we talking about? Um, as, as the church has wrestled with this, as scholars have kind of dug into this, there's, there's kind of two main categories that people fall into, two main views. Um, the first is to look carefully at the context of this passage. And uh, when you're doing biblical study, context is king. Context is huge. There are are three major rules of good biblical interpretation, and they are context, context, context. Okay? We Look at the context, and Genesis 4 and 5 have, have been laying out for us pretty clearly a distinction between this sinful line of Cain... And the Godly line of Seth, these two groups. And so as we look at the, the context, it seems pretty obvious the, the sons of God, they would be the men of the line of Seth. These are, the, these are the godly men, right? They're calling on the name of the Lord, they're walking with God. Um, scripture refers to Israel as God's son, and believers are called children of God. It's, it's, it works. It makes sense. The daughters of men then would be understood as women from the, the ungodly line of Cain. And, and so it would be the sinful, rebellious line. And it would obviously be wrong um, for the sons of God to take as wives the daughters of, of man. Throughout Scripture, God is always strictly forbidding those who follow him to marry those who do not. That's trouble. did not work good for Solomon. It won't work good for you. Um, and so this could be an account of that. The, the godly line of Seth um, from chapter 5 um, is, is being corrupted and, and is ultimately brought into sin by intermarrying with this unbelieving line uh, of the daughters of men. Um, this is the view that Augustine held to. Um, Calvin, Luther, the reformers, they would all take this position. And, and numerous godly men today um, would, would take this, uh, this understanding. Contextually, that makes good sense, and it avoids uh, a number of crazy and difficult, maybe uh, insurmountable problems of option number two. Um, option number two is this, that these sons of God that took daughters of men as their wives uh, were not the righteous line of Seth, but these are rebellious angels. Um, these were uh, angels who sinned against God. We would, we would call them demons. Um, now, I find that difficult to fit in the context. This would be the first mention of angels in the Bible, and it just comes in right out of crazy town. Um, Like, lead us in slowly. Who are these beings? Where did they come from? It seems odd that it would just drop in that way. Um, A bigger problem, I think, um, angels are not physical beings, and they're certainly not sexual beings. Even Jesus, when he was asked about marriage in heaven, he, he says this, Matthew twenty two thirty. Um, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. The angels in heaven don't marry or give in marriage. They don't procreate. There were a number of angels created, and they, they don't procreate as, as we do. So that's a massive question mark, if these sons of gods are to be understood as, as angels. However, if we look beyond the context, God speaks of his followers as his children, even sometimes as his sons, but that phrase, sons of God, um, it's actually only used a few times, four times in in the rest of the Old Testament. Um, So it's used here, um, and then it's used twice in Job, and then it's used in Aramaic, once in Daniel. Uh, And each time, it, it clearly does refer to Angels or uh, spiritual or divine beings. So that phrase, sons of God, seems to be pretty specific to angelic beings. And so even though it doesn't fit with the immediate context, we look at the rest of Scripture, it kind of pulls us that way. The last piece of the puzzle um, takes us to the New Testament. There there are two passages in the New Testament that most likely speak about this. And uh, I'll let you write down the references and uh, Look them up later if you'd like. Jude, verses 6 and 7, and Second Peter 2, 4 to 5. And, and both of those passages clearly speak of angels sinning. Um, they mention Sodom and Gomorrah in the context, which, which implies that it was sexual in nature somehow. Second Peter explicitly puts them uh, in the time of Noah before the flood. And, and, and these passages... Um, they're drawing on something as if the people would know the story, and if it's not this story, I don't know what story it is. And they don't use the phrase sons of God in an unclear way, they use angelos, angels. And so those are the two kind of major positions. There's good reasons to hold either of them. There are significant issues with both of them. Um, if you were to put a gun to my head and I had to choose, um, it might be different tomorrow. But, but today I would say I'm leaning toward option two with a caveat. I, I think it makes the most biblical sense to understand these as, as angels who rebelled against God. The caveat, the assumption that I would maybe bring in, and, and I admit I'm importing this into Scripture, um, hold it very loosely, maybe these, these angels turned demons when they, they took wives. Maybe they did that through demon possession. Um, maybe that's how they uh, engaged in, in this and produced offspring. Um, that they, they inhabited men and, um, and, and drove them that way. Now, that's not in the text. That's a guess. If you have a better guess, I'm open to it. Um, if you come up to me and I have a different answer for you another day, don't be surprised. Um, it's not clear. Now, having gone through all of that, if you're paying attention, you've noticed, we didn't even get to the Nephilim. <laughs> so let's touch that briefly. Verse 4 The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the mighty men of renown. So Nephilim are also these these mighty men of old, these men of renown. Obviously there were stories, there were myths of great men in the past, men of great fame. Uh, To this day, we have record of some of these. There's the old uh, Akkadian tablets from probably about 1200 BC um, tell the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu and Upnapishtim. Yes, I practiced that. Thank you. Um, They're larger than life. These guys are like half God, half man. They battle with each other. They they engage in sexual immorality. Um, They even face a cataclysmic flood. And, And so... These stories of the old men, the heroes of old, um, were around. The word Nephilim means the fallen ones. Interesting. Um, Just to stir the pot a little more, it doesn't mean giants. It doesn't say that. Um, It's fallen ones. Um, Maybe they were of large stature, but that's not found here. Um, Just to confuse the issue, the the reason we jump to giants, the old King James used Giants there. Uh, and they did that um, because they were looking at Numbers thirteen. Twelve spies. Remember this? They they go into ten were good and or ten were bad and two were good. And, and they go into scope out Canaan. They bring the report back. And uh, and the ten bad spies have this to say, Numbers thirteen thirty-three. This is the their description of the Canaanites. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them also. But pay attention. Yes, the, this is written in the Bible, and the Bible is always true, but what is the Bible true about here? The Bible is telling us the truth about what these people said. And what do we know about these 10 spies? They're cowards. They weren't trusting in the Lord. Um, they didn't want Israel to invade Canaan. And, and so verse um, 32, just before that, says, they brought a bad report. And so this is a true account of a bad report. They're trying to scare the people. The 10 spies are not a trustworthy source. Um, maybe they were giants. Maybe not. I mean, I was just imagining myself this week. What if I was kind of hyped up and 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 dark at night, and I and I broke into a house and was sneaking through the kitchen, and and little did I know I had broken into the Cornelsons' kitchen, and I found Nathan and Austin. (laughs) I'm gonna run out. There's giants in that house. They were like ten feet tall. Not too far off, right? These guys are hyped up on adrenaline. They're they're telling a story. But they do say, these are descendants from the Nephilim. Well, Genesis 6 and 7 make it pretty clear. The Nephilim die in the flood. They get wiped out. The only one that makes it through the flood is, is Noah and his, and his family. They were judged by God. They're wiped off the face of the earth. So the Anakites, the Canaanites, Goliath, um, these other myths and legends after the flood. Maybe there's something else going on there, but it's not the Nephilim from Genesis 6. Um, I say that because if you go to YouTube, oh, please don't go to YouTube, um, and you search in the Nephilim, um, you're going to find all kinds of crazy videos about ancient alien races and and biblical forgotten bloodlines restored. There's a video called, Are Some of Us Nephilim? No. No. The answer is there's way too much nonsense out there, and these obscure passages attract all this ridiculous attention. Um, I've also seen speculation that, that maybe the reason for the flood was that God was trying to um, purify the gene pool. Same thing with the Canaanites, right? That, that God couldn't bring about the rescuer as a descendant of the woman if there was demon genetics, demon DNA mixed in. And, and then that would also be why he, so they wiped out the Canaanites completely. They would tie those together. Um, as much as there's a lot of questions here, I don't think that's one of them. Um, a lot of things are unclear, but this is actually fairly clear. And, and this is what gets us finally to the point of this passage. Let's, let's stop wondering and being distracted. Let's get to what God's trying to teach us here. Verse 5 gives us the point. Loud and clear, this is why the Lord is doing what he's doing. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Continually. That's God's summary of verses 1 to 4. Maybe it was demonic influences twisting society and and corrupting humanity. Maybe it was just the the line of Seth intermingling with the line of Cain. Um, But the end result is corruption in the human race, not with demonic DNA, with something far worse wickedness, sin not evil from the outside. It wasn't that the human race was somehow kind of stained on the surface by their interaction with these demons. God is clear, the the wickedness that he's looking at comes from the deepest part of the human heart. The intentions of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. So let's just pause. Is is Satan real? Are there such things as demons? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there, is there rebellious and spiteful ambition to, to lead and to, and to coax and to coerce humanity into deeper rebellion and, and increasing sin against God? Oh, you better believe it is. Are they effective at doing that, even today, at drawing people into to sin and perversion? Yes. But when it comes right down to it, your primary problem is not a demon problem. The root, the beginning, the, the foundation of the, the problems of this world, and the root and the beginning and the foundation of the, the problems in your life are not from outside of us. They're from inside of us. We, we love to pass the buck. We love to push the blame off somewhere else. You have kids. My brother made me do it. I wouldn't have had to hit him if he wasn't being so mean. Um, Let's be honest, we see that in the grocery store too. Um, We love to push the blame. You can go to some some churches and if you, you know what, I just, uh, I'm getting drunk every weekend. We need to cast out the demon of alcohol. You don't have a demon of alcohol, you have sin in your heart. This is the, the unbridled wickedness that God is concerned about. Maybe it was demons tempting Influencing according to, to Jude and 2 Peter, those particular demons were, were locked away, punished. God's concern is the wickedness of the human heart. That's the bigger issue here. The lustful perversion of marriage, right? They, they took as their wives any they chose. This is the beginning of harems, sexual abuse, rape. This is the corruption of human society, breaking down God's plan, God's structure. These were the the great men of renown, these mighty, strong, powerful men, men who were famous in the world. This is the the same thing that we saw in in chapters 4 and 5. This is the difference between the Lamech of the line of Cain, who valued the world and treasured the world and built his whole kingdom here, focused on the things of the earth, and the Lamech from the line of Seth, who trusted in the promises of God. Now even the line of Seth is getting drawn in Enamored with fame and fortune and greatness in the world. Oh, the Nephilim, they're the, the famous ones, and one of men of renown. They're so powerful and they, they rule, and maybe I can be like one of them, or maybe I am one of them. It's easily missed. But why did God react in verse 3 in the middle of this? He shortens their lifespan to 120 years. I, I think that's because we're meant to understand in these verses. This is humanity, once again, rejecting God, embracing the world, probably, or possibly in some ways, even pursuing their own own deity, right? When Satan first promised the fruit, "You'll you'll be like God. Well, it didn't work. Well, maybe this will help me be like God. Maybe we follow the Nephilim. Maybe if we continue in this way. These great heroes of the past are mentioned here for this reason. These are those bad men that seem to just have everything going their way. They're the great, powerful men of renown. Look up to them and and there's awe and inspiring. And God says, I wiped them out. I crushed them. Why do good things happen to bad people? Oh, judgment is coming. Isn't this us today? Abusing sex and sexuality in a myriad of ways and simply pursuing greatness according to earthly definitions. Power and influence and fame and, and, and trying to rule ourselves as if, as if we were God, living for, for our own glory, our own kingdom. But as we look at these things, frankly, far too often, we just don't think much of it, right? Like, so what? So what if someone messes around a little before marriage? So what if they skip the whole step of marriage? They just move in together. So what if a man and a man or a woman and a woman want to be together? They they love each other. They're two consenting adults. Who cares? And these men of renown. What about those who we see who find success and fame and fortune? These these mighty men that we we looked up to, they, they gain all this respect and admiration. What's so wrong with that? They're doing well for themselves. But to put it bluntly, they've abandoned the worship of God and turned instead to worship themselves. We've decided to follow our own rules that I'll be the one who decides what is right. They aren't interested in submitting to and serving God for His glory. They're they're simply interested in building themselves up and showing off and, and doing whatever they want for their own glory. And these things have become pretty normal to us. This is is the everyday world that we live in, right? These are our neighbors and coworkers and bosses. These are the people that we see on TV. This This is us. And it's in that world that we're drawn to the question, a lot of bad things happen to good people. It's in that context we feel uncomfortable with the idea of, of God's judgment. How could God just just wipe out these innocent men and women and children? How can that be fair? This flood is horrible. I mean, go talk to Richard Dawkins about what he thinks about the flood. But the reality is God looks in at man and says, his wickedness is great every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all the time. Just because fish don't know they're wet doesn't mean they're not underwater. Just because this is what we know is normal and it's become tolerable and accepted doesn't mean it's good. Our society operates under the assumption that that humans are basically good, right? Right? Our our intrinsic nature is essentially pure and kind and charitable. And so we see something like the flood, like the judgment of God, we recoil. That's horrifying. That's terrible. That's not fair. God says, no. That is fair. That's what this deserves. Sin begins in the heart of man. And the heart of man is wicked. It's wicked. Jesus, kind, loving, gentle Jesus, says this. Mark 7. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. That's rough. That's what's in your heart and mine, according to Jesus. Job 15. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? God puts no trust in his holy ones, his his angels. The heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less the one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. That's us. We just drink it like water. We don't even notice. We live in the midst of iniquity. That's the wickedness of man. We can come up with all kinds of philosophical defenses. We can debate and argue about what's good and, and we can excuse all kinds of things, but in the end it's it's only God's law that matters. It's only God's judgment that is important. And this statement here, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that's not just God's casual observation. That's his judgment, that's his condemnation. We are born in sin. Try as we may to hide it, to dress it up, to ignore it, to deny it, it's not going anywhere. We are wicked from the depths of who we are. You don't don't have to teach a baby to be selfish. You don't have to train a a young boy to, to hit his brother. And it only gets worse as we grow. The truth is, bad things never happen to good people. Because there aren't any. There's no such thing. This is the unbridled wickedness. I think we often think back to this passage of scripture and we have this just horrible picture in our mind of the, the chaos that it must have been. Um, that's true, It just that it also looks a heck of a lot like today. There's unbridled wickedness. Secondly then, we see unwavering holiness. Unwavering holiness. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Suffice it to say, the Lord is not pleased. In contrast to the sinfulness of man, we see the, the holiness of God. The word holy means other. He's not like us. He is separate from us. He stands over and and outside of this world. He is untainted, unstained by it, and yet he's not unaffected by it. This is a shocking passage, so important, but so easily misunderstood. The Lord is grieved. The Lord is broken in seeing the sinfulness of man, and he He regrets it. If we're not careful, we can get the wrong idea about God here. It says the Lord regretted that he had made man. He was grieved in his heart. Some have read this and come to the conclusion um, God must then be a God who, who learns, who makes mistakes, a God who plans one thing and then it doesn't quite happen the way that he wanted and he has to kind of roll with the punches. Things don't always go God's way, obviously. From this verse, God is not sovereign. Well, how do we understand this? It says right here, God regretted what he had done. Well, there there are a couple of similar passages to this as well. Another one is uh, 1 Samuel 15, 11. Um, The Lord says, I have regretted that I've made Saul king. For he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So God did something. He made Saul king, and then later he regretted it. He wished he had not done it. Seems like he thought Saul was a good guy, but it didn't turn out the way he wanted. So what do we make of this? Because it draws into question um, not just the sovereignty of God, but, but the wisdom of God. Did God not know this would happen? Does God not know the future? Did he not even know the present? I mean, I'm reading the story of Saul, and I'm going, this ain't going to turn out well. Did God not see that? And here we are in this world today. Are we in danger of God changing his mind again? Are we in danger of God regretting that he had sent Christ? Am I in danger of God regretting that he had saved me, changing his mind? If God doesn't know the future and isn't even sure what the outcome of his own decisions will be, this world becomes a scary place real fast. That's not what's happening here. Let's look at a couple other passages of Scripture. The the whole Bible works together. It is not Uh, self-contradictory. And so we flip over to Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Or the Son of Man, that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? God makes plans, he accomplishes them. God doesn't lie, God doesn't change his mind, period. And there's just numerous verses that that affirm this. I'm just going to buzz through a few quickly. If you want to jot these references down, go ahead. We're not going to pause long here. So Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's purposes, not thwarted. Always happen. Psalm 33, 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. So they have their plans, and he crushes them. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Okay, so God's plans don't change. They don't fail. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, the seas and all the deeps. There's nowhere in this world where God's plans are not perfectly carried out. If he wants it, he does it. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah fourteen twenty seven. the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? So, okay, the people in Noah's day, they were not annulling God's plan. God didn't hope for it to go one way and all these people rebelled and it ruined God's plan. No. Here's an interesting one. Just moments ago, we looked at uh, 1 Samuel 15:11. God regretted that he had made Saul. 1 Samuel 15, 29, so 18 verses later. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. He's he is not a man that he should have regret. But he just said that he regretted. Like, God regretted it, and then minutes later we're told God doesn't have regrets. So I think we have two options here. The first option is that God is like some of those people that we know that say, I never lie. I am trustworthy. I'm a man of my word. If I say it, I will do it. And then the next thing we know... Um, We don't know where to find them. They don't do what they said. What they said doesn't turn out to be true. Maybe. Maybe that's what's happening with God. But I think that's exactly what he means when he says, I am not a man that I should change my mind. I'm not like you in that. I'm not limited in my understanding and my my wisdom and my knowledge and my power. He is all-knowing and all-wise and all All-powerful. So what's the second option? The second option is that here, as in many verses, um, we see God is absolutely sovereign. He has a plan from, from beginning to end, and he is carrying it out perfectly. He doesn't make mistakes. He's never surprised. He's not learning or guessing. He's not responding to changes or rolling with the punches. He makes his plans, he carries them out perfectly and completely in, in every single detail. But that doesn't mean he's unfeeling about it. That doesn't mean he doesn't care. That doesn't make God into a robot. These verses that speak of God's grief, even God regretting, what they're doing is called anthropomorphism. It's using human language of God trying to help us understand uh, his heart. And we do the same thing when we speak of the hand of God or the eyes of God. God doesn't have hands. God doesn't have eyes. God doesn't see the same way that we see. Light does not enter through his retinas and go to his optic nerve. And and yet we say that God saw, the eyes of the Lord are on you. And, And so we're using this anthropomorphism when we say that God regrets, we're using language that we understand as humans, that God, in, in working out His good plan, His perfect plan laid out from history past, is unfolding exactly how He ordained, but even in that, there are things that He's ordained that still grieve Him, that He doesn't take delight in. Look at God's heart, Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked from, should turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It doesn't delight him. He doesn't rejoice in that. And yet Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble, or could be read the day of destruction. God has created the wicked for the day of destruction, but he he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. This has always been part of God's plan, but there are parts of his plan that, that grieve him. One more, Lamentations 3.33. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. God doesn't afflict from the heart. He doesn't rejoice in that. It's it's part of his greater plan for the the maximum display of his glory, unveiling his his majesty, but he doesn't delight in that aspect of it. God is not a vengeful, angry judge, he's not maniacally laughing as he sends the flood. There's sorrow in the heart of God when you take that seriously those whom he created, those whom he loves as they turn their back on him and he rolls out his judgment. He feels that. Verse 6 shows us that sorrow. Verse 7 then shows us God's justice. Even in the face of that sorrow, his holiness is unwavering. It could have said God was grieved and, and so, I don't know, he let them go. He Quietly fixed it. But no, instead, the Lord says, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Even as humans, we get this, right? I mean, our emotions are complex enough that we understand this. God's must be significantly more complex. I do not delight in spanking my son, it's not fun. I take no pleasure in that. I don't enjoy it. But I have a greater goal. I have a goal of him growing into maturity and obedience and being a functioning part of society. And so there's a vastly greater joy in that goal that outweighs those moments that I do not enjoy. God's ultimate goal to display of his glory in all things, the pursuit of that ultimate goal then includes the creation of wicked people and the judgment of wicked men. God's holiness is, is put on display as he judges the wicked. As people turn away from him, it, it begs the question, does it matter? How seriously do we need to take God? Um, does God's glory matter? The word, the word glory literally means weightiness. How heavy is God? Does he matter? Maybe God is like the, the TV sitcom boss who's just totally useless. No one respects him. He, he tells his employees, hey, hey, get to work. And, 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 and they absolutely ignore him, right? They, they don't do a thing about it. And, and he kind of stands there awkwardly and then mumbles to himself as he walks away because he has no power, no authority, no one respects him. Is that what God is like? There's no consequences, God says, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. And we're like, never mind, God. And he's like, oh, okay. Is that God? God is kind and compassionate and loving. And as much as it grieves him to do so, he shows here that disregarding him, disrespecting him, ignoring him is deadly serious. That he is glorious. That he is weighty. That he that he is He matters. His holiness is unwavering. He absolutely will completely judge sin. The global flood wiping out every man, woman, and child right down to the the animals, the bugs, and the birds. It's God's statement of just how seriously we should take Him. He is holy. He will judge the wicked and no one will rescue even the, these mighty men of old, these great heroes who, were, who were, had these conquests and fame, God crushes them like he does the Beatles. Matters not. It's a warning. And it's recorded for us that we might see the sin in our time and the sin in our lives and tremble. The point is, This is how shockingly evil we are. This is how shockingly holy God is. God is not a God to be trifled with. There are so many today who would openly mock God. They will not mock forever. This is what happens when unbridled sin meets with unwavering holiness. And this is a warning. It's a warning to us. Verse 8 then comes in with this glorious surprise. Finally, here we see unbelievable grace. Unbelievable grace. Verse 8, at the end of this this debauchery and sin and the holiness and the wrath of God, verse 8 just comes in quiet but shocking. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now we're tempted to want to look ahead and we want to go to, to verse 9 when it says these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all his generation. Noah walked with God. Well, well that makes sense. That's why. That's why Noah didn't die um, because everyone else was bad, but Noah was good. But that's not what it says. You'll notice that phrase, these are the generations of Noah. This is, this is the next story. That comes after this. Verse 8 comes first. First, God shows favor. Then we hear Noah walked with God. Secondly, we have to understand the meaning of the word favor. It doesn't say God showed Noah justice. God gave Noah what he deserved because he was a good guy. The, the word here is grace. This word assumes kindness. This word assumes mercy. It assumes that Noah was given something that he did not deserve. Could have easily said God would blot out all of the wicked people, but Noah wasn't one of them. Noah earned God's respect. It doesn't say that. It says Noah found favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord, undeserved kindness. In God's kindness and patience, he did not put the entire human race to an end. He did not give everyone what they deserved. He gave Noah grace. God not only displays his holiness and his justice in punishing sinners, he also displays his kindness and his mercy in rescuing Noah. And as much as As as, as much as the severe and terrible judgment of the flood ought to be this this warning in front of us and leave us trembling, the, the astounding kindness of God toward Noah ought to give us hope. This terrible, holy God, the God of judgment, the God who is deadly serious about sin. The God that we have disobeyed and dishonored. He doesn't afflict from the heart. He delights to show mercy. Isaiah 55, 6 to 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. The God of unwavering holiness is also a God of unimaginable grace. That is is good news. That is good news. And how does he do it? If he's so holy and just and perfectly righteous, if if overlooking sin would be to, to degrade his holiness, his glory, how is it that he can let sinners live and not have that as a black mark against his character? Well, because actually there was one time, one singular time, when bad things happened to a good person. That person was Jesus Christ, the perfect holy God himself come down to earth, the only good person who ever lived, and the bad thing that happened to him Was the worst thing that could ever happen, that has ever happened to anyone in the history of mankind. When the terrible wrath of God, get that? The wrath of God, the flood coming in and wiping out every living creature, that was just a symbol of the wrath of God. That was just pointing to the wrath of God. The plagues, that came through Moses and destroyed the nation of Israel. That was just just an emblem of the wrath of God. The true wrath of God came and landed on Jesus on the cross. God is as just and righteous and holy. So he would never leave sin unpunished. Never. 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 Would he leave his glory undefended? But God, who is merciful and gracious, would take that punishment on himself. Having punished sin and displayed his wrath on the cross of Christ, he's able to show favor to sinners like you and like me. Roman, why don't you come prepared to lead us in worship again? This is what it means to find favor in the eyes of the Lord. to, To see, to know this unbridled wickedness, not just in the world around us, but in my own heart. To see the unwavering holiness of God, to know that he is just and he will judge and he would be right to do it. And then to be forgiven for no other reason than the unimaginable grace of God. But God, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with him. It's Christ. It's by grace. You come to communion this morning. This is what we remember. This is what we celebrate. If you're here today and this is not you, you've not admitted and confessed the, the wickedness of your own heart. You've, you've not seen yourself as deserving of the wrath of God. You've not run to, to Jesus and trusted in him. Then we ask you just to observe this morning, just to pass, and consider these things. Think about this. But if you're a believer, if you've been born again, if you've been given this new life, if you're a recipient of this favor of God, come. We celebrate together, we remember Christ. We don't come saying, I'm perfect, I'm one of the, the righteous ones, we come saying, I'm a sinner who needs a savior. We come in repentance, we come in faith, trusting in him again. And we remember and we rejoice in the unbelievable grace of God giving forgiveness and life to us who deserved only death. So let's contemplate on that, meditate on that as we, as we sing together, To prepare our hearts to celebrate communion. Would you stand? Um, Let's join in song together.